if you have your Bibles or if you're on a phone, if you want to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 59, uh, we're going to look at verses 9 to 21. If you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Isaiah 59, uh, verses 9 to 21, and it's also going to be on the screen behind me. Isaiah 59, 9 to 21, this is the reading of God's word. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets, honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, and those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you, and my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, I mentioned that we are in a series called The Church We Long For, and last week uh, we opened the series by talking about what it means to be a church that abides, right? A church that prioritizes being with God over simply doing things for God or knowing a lot about God. A church where every person is connected to the vine, connected to the person of Christ, understanding that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Well, today I want to talk about what it looks like to be a church that contends. The church that contends. And I love that word contend because it's a word that means to struggle, to fight for something. And, and, and you know, especially here in the West, I think it's really easy for us to adopt a passive faith, um, to take kind of a defensive posture, to kind of coast and become complacent until there's something we have to react to. But when we read the scripture, we find that believers aren't called to take a passive posture, but an active one. 
We aren't called to simply react to things uh, as they happen. We're called to fight with God for the renewal of our world. Now, obviously it goes without saying that the church has uh, often grossly misinterpreted this idea to justify fighting battles, and in my opinion, were never ours to fight, right? The uh, evangelicals are notorious for getting outraged and waging war on things that really in the grand scheme of life don't really matter, right? Halloween is a perfect example of this, right? Harry Potter, I don't know if you remember that, right? I grew up in a church where they said, like, I was inviting witchcraft and, you know, demons into my life if I read Harry Potter. Um, If you remember last year, Little Nas X uh, released a controversial shoe that uh, became known as the Satan shoe, right? Because there was 666 inscribed on it. I think there was an inverted cross and I think like blood, if I'm not mistaken. So kind of weird, okay? Kind of weird. I wouldn't buy one myself. Um, but I thought it was really funny that that week, every church and every pastor was talking about it like it was the end of the world. Everyone was making a statement about the statement, uh, about the Satan shoe. Everyone was condemning it. Churches were going to try to boycott Nike. Churches were going to try to boycott all of Lil Nas X's music. All while ignoring the very real suffering, oppression, and injustice happening all around them. Um, this week, uh, there was a massive investigative report released of the largest Protestant denomination in the country, the Southern Baptist Convention, and it sent shockwaves through the evangelical community. And uh, if you haven't seen it, I would definitely go look it up um, because it's heartbreaking. And The report, among many other things, provided a list of over 700 Southern Baptist pastors uh, accused of sexual abuse who were allowed to keep pastoring, and detailed basically how the denomination not only silenced accusers, but kept the information secret for decades. They're saying that this could be the Protestant equivalent of what happened in the Catholic Church years ago. Now keep in mind, this is a denomination that has prided itself in being the bastion of biblical orthodoxy that has prided itself on its ability to stay pure in the midst of this godless culture and has been known in recent years to wage war on this godless culture, again, all while ignoring the very real systemic abuse happening within their own walls. Now, I don't say this um, to point fingers, obviously, or to sit on a high horse, but I do say this because I want to nuance our conversation and our discussion today around what it means to be a church that contends, a church that fights, because I think too often the church has fought for the wrong thing. So I want to make, make that disclaimer before we get into this. Well, our text this morning comes from Isaiah 59, and it paints a picture of a world that has gone off the rails. I mean, you read it. Uh, You just heard it read. I mean, it's a depressing passage. And in verse 8, which we didn't read, the prophet describes it as a world where all activity is filled with sin and violence is its trademark, where corruption, deceit, and oppression are the norm, where people map out crooked roads and no one who walks along them knows peace. And it's hard to read that and not to think about America in 2022. It's the reality of the world we're living in. 
And there's a line in Isaiah 59 that breaks my heart every time I read it. And the prophet is talking about God looking upon this broken world. And it says, he, God, saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. There was no one to intervene, not one. God is looking for just one person who will do something about this. And it says he looks around and sees no one. And it should make all of us wonder, what is God thinking as he looks upon our city and as he looks upon our nation? My guess is that God is weeping. And my guess is that he is now asking the question again, is there someone who will intervene? You know, when we read the Old Testament, there's this recurring theme of God searching for just that one person who will intercede on behalf of their people who have gone astray, who've turned their backs on God, who are on the verge of bringing God's righteous judgment upon themselves. We see it in Genesis, uh, we see it in Genesis 18 with Abraham. God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham pleads with God to spare the city. He's like, God, I know you're a righteous God. You've got to spare the city if we can find even 50 righteous people in the city. And God says, okay, if you can find me 50 righteous people, I'll spare the city. And Abraham's like, wait, can we make that 40? And God's like, all right, I'll do 40. Abraham's like, let's go 30. And he goes 20. And he goes 10. He said, if I can find 10 righteous people in the city, will you spare the city? And God says, fine, I'll do it. It's crazy. You have a man arguing with the God of the universe, negotiating with him and God of the universe, relenting. Well, if you know how the story goes, it's sad because they can't even find 10 righteous people in the city. So in the end, the city is destroyed, but it still makes the point that God allows a human being to contend with him. We see it in Exodus 32 in the life of Moses, after God has just freed his people from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, in the blink of an eye, they're back to worshiping a golden calf, turning their backs on God, rebelling against God, and they're at the bottom of the mountain worshiping the golden calf, and God says, are you serious? What do I have to do to get these people to love me? I'm done with it. I can't do this anymore. And Moses stands in the gap and he says, please, and he pleads with God, and he begs God on behalf of his people, and guess what happens? God listens. He changes his mind. He says, okay, I won't destroy them. We see Elijah do it. We see Daniel do it. We see it in the lives of David, Ruth, Esther, these faithful servants of God who stand in the gap for their generation and contend with God for his mercy and the renewal of the world. And this is such a profound thought because we know God doesn't need us to do what he does. And yet not only does God tolerate us, he actually invites us into partnership with him. He desires for us to join him in the renewal of all of creation. Uh, you know, many of you know I have two kids, um, six and four, and they're at an age right now when they can help me cook, which is amazing, but it's also like 
incredibly inefficient, okay? Like, uh, you know, if I want to cook something up in 15 minutes, cooking with my kids takes like two hours, okay? Jack is like cracking the eggs and throwing the shells inside the bowl, and we're mixing it all together, and I got to fish all the cracked shells out. And, and, and yet as a dad, there's something about it that brings me so much joy to see it bring my kids so much joy to partner with me in cooking this meal. And at some point, even their mistakes are endearing. And of course, it would be much easier without them. I could probably be a lot faster and more efficient. The food would prob might probably taste better at the end of it all. And yet, I want to do this with my kids. And this is the heart of God. He doesn't just tolerate us, but he invites us to participate in his renewal project. And this is why it's so sad when you read Isaiah 59, verse 16, where it says, God found no one who would join him. God's like, does somebody want to cook with me? Does somebody want to do this with me? And he says he looks around and finds no one. We see a similar scene in the book of Ezekiel. When you read Ezekiel in chapter 22, God looks at the depraved state of his people, and there he uses this vivid imagery of a wall that's eroding and falling apart. And he says, find me one person who will stand in the breach of this wall and will repair this wall, and I will spare the whole city. And yet God can find no one. Not one. And what he says to his people in Ezekiel 22 is almost more damning than what he says in Isaiah 59. And I want to read this to you. And I want you to tell me that you don't hear America when you hear this read. This is what God says. He says, You city that brings on herself doom by shedding blood in her midst and defiles herself by making idols. You have become guilty because of the blood you have shed and have become defiled by the idols you have made. You have brought your days to a close, and the end of your years has come. Therefore, I will make you an object of scorn to the nations and a laughingstock to all the countries. Those who are near and those who are far away will mock you, you infamous city full of turmoil. And I know that's dark to read, especially on Memorial Day weekend. And um, if hearing that strikes a chord with you, I think it should. All week long, I've been going through the names, the faces, and the stories of the 19 children and the two teachers who lost their lives this week. And I can't help but to think, this is our failure. We have failed as a nation. We have failed as a church. We have failed our children. We have failed our parents and we have failed our teachers to think that we are living in a world where teachers, aside from all the million things they have to think about, have to think about an active shooter coming into the classroom. It's insane. And so the big question I believe God is asking all of us today as he looks upon this wall that is eroding and falling apart is this. Who among us is willing to stand in the gap? Who among us is willing to contend for the oppressed? Who among us will fight with God to renew that which is broken in our world? 
And if there's anything that is crystal clear when you read Isaiah 59, it's that what God cares about more than anything else, more than Halloween or Harry Potter, is justice. Verse 9, the prophet says, justice is far from us. Verse 11, we look for justice but find none. Verse 14, so justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Verse 15, the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He says, you want to know what's wrong with this world? There is no justice. God is grieved to the very core of his being when he looks upon a world devoid of justice, when he sees the shedding of innocent blood, when he sees people created in his image, murdered, dehumanized, and marginalized. Because justice isn't just what God seeks, it's who God is. God in his very nature is just. Psalm 89 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And so when God sees what happened in Buffalo, when God sees what happened in Laguna Woods, when he sees what happened in Uvalde, when he sees the spiritual and sexual abuse that's been going unchecked in the church for years, there is nothing that angers and grieves his heart more. And when these things happen, I believe God asks, who is the one person or one community of people who will stand in the gap for the oppressed? And my prayer is that we would be a community like that. That we would be a church that responds to God's invitation to contend for the renewal of our city, our nation, and the world. Now, I know that's like a big concept, so let me kind of make this a little bit more practical. How do we do that? And I'm going to give us three practical ways we can be a church that contends. We contend on our knees. We contend with our voices. And we contend with our hands on our knees with our voices and with our hands first we contend on our knees second chronicles 7 14 says if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then i will hear from heaven and i will forgive their sin and heal their land if my people would get on their knees and pray i will forgive their sins and heal their land that is a profound promise and if this is true then this means that prayer must be our first impulse as believers not the last resort and i know right now there's so much disdain for that phrase thoughts and prayers right and i get it because for so long this phrase thoughts and prayers has equaled a mindless uh, a mindless hashtag for people to be able to say something, have a fleeting thought, and then wipe their hands clean of responsibility. I get this. I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about pleading with the God of heaven and earth to act according to his character, to heal our land and change the course of history. Moses interceded for his people and God acted. God changed his mind. And as believers, the worst thing that can happen for us is for us to lose our belief in prayer. Because the moment we stop praying is the moment we're saying, we don't need God to act, we can take care of ourselves. And that's a scary place to be in. You know, if you're like me, 
And with each subsequent tragedy, you feel more and more helpless. I know sometimes the instinct is to say prayer doesn't work, and the instinct is to pray less. I would say if you're feeling helpless this morning, our instinct should be to pray more. And while prayer can't be our only response to injustice, it should always be the first because it establishes God as the one who's in charge. Right? So number one, we contend on our knees. Number two, we contend with our voices. Proverbs 31 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. The church among many other things, must be a prophetic voice in a moment when there is so much injustice and oppression all around us. It's the church who should be the first to call out abusive leaders. It's the church who should be the first to call out toxic and oppressive structures. And, and you know what? I get it. So often the churches don't want to do this because there's a cost. There's a cost to speaking up. Many of you may not know who Lorianne Thompson is, but Lorianne Thompson was the first victim to come forward with claims of sexual abuse at the hands of Ravi Zacharias, who was one of the most well-known, prominent Christian evangelists of our generation. And not surprisingly, when she came out, her, actions, uh, her accusations were met with immediate hostility and suspicion not only by Ravi himself, but by the church capital C at large. People shunned her and outcast her. They said, how dare you defame a hero of our faith? She was silenced. And since then, her claims have been proven true. In the wake of countless other reports of sexual abuse and misconduct that have surfaced in the past few years, but the point is this. At the end of the day, the church was more interested in preserving itself and protecting its own than speaking out against injustice. And the church, we get it wrong all the time. We're loud when we should be quiet, and we're quiet when we should be loud. We got to ask God for wisdom and discernment because we need to be a prophetic voice in this generation. I know, you know, our church, we are predominantly Asian American. And I know that for much of our lives, we've lived believing that we needed to be silent. We weren't allowed to stir the pot, stir the pot just kind of coast, stay under the radar, don't say anything, be good, do the right thing, and nobody will bother you. But I believe in this cultural moment, we actually have a great opportunity to find our unique voice as Asian Americans, but also as a church. Because I believe God wants to say something through our people. So number one, we contend on our knees. Number two, with our voices. And finally, with our hands. We contend with our hands. In Isaiah 59, when it says, God was appalled that there was no one to intervene, the Hebrew word there, translated intervene, actually means to restore the proper order. So when God says he, he wants, he's looking for someone to intervene, he's not look, just looking for someone to care about these issues. He's looking for someone to do something about it. Right? In, in Ezekiel 22, God isn't just looking for someone who will stand in the breach on the wall. He's looking for someone to actually repair the wall. Put another way, God isn't just looking uh, God isn't just asking us to plead for change. He's asking us to be a part of that change. 
The big problem right now is that there's so much performative activism, so many people wanting to show others that they care, but not enough people willing to do the work necessary for actual change. The question we should be asking ourselves every time we want to say something for the underserved, the question we should be regularly asking ourselves is what are we all doing individually and collectively to develop relationships with the underserved, with the underrepresented, with those whose voices aren't heard? Are we regularly asking ourselves how we can physically and tangibly love and serve those who've been forgotten and often overlooked by our society? You know, this past week, I had the opportunity to spend some time with a dear brother, Darren McAllister, over at LA Mission, and I got a chance to hear his story and talk to so many people over at the mission who've dedicated their lives to serving the homeless population on Skid Row. And it's incredible what they do. They give out 1,200 meals a day, 400 for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They serve anyone who walks in their doors straight off the streets. They feed them, they clothe them, they restore their dignity, they give them tools and resources so that they can become a contributing member to society. They have someone on staff there uh, to act as career services, to be legal counsel. I mean, it's incredible the work they are doing. And let me tell you this, a lot of the people I met, I guarantee you, they do not have a social media platform or social media following, but I'll tell you this, they are contending for the kingdom. They are fighting with God in partnership with him for the renewal of our city and the world. And I know that sometimes, right, we can hear stories like Darren's, because I felt this on the drive home. I was like, I am a horrible pastor. I was like, what am I doing? And, and I know that we can hear stories like that and say, like, man, if that's what contending looks like, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I'm ready to do that. There are so many barriers and obstacles for us to get there. But I believe all of us can still contend with our hands in small ways by creating small pockets of love wherever we go. You know what's really interesting? Mother Teresa was once asked what could be done in the light of so much evil in the world. This is Mother Teresa, okay? This is someone who has literally dropped everything, given her entire life over, over to serving the un for serving the underserved. And I thought you would think Mother Teresa, when asked that question, would say, we need more people like me. We need more people to give up everything. You know what she said? She said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. Profound. She said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. And what she was getting at was that changing the world isn't about just a few people doing these huge things. It's about communities of people doing small things taking small, ordinary steps of faith. If you feel helpless in the wake of a tragedy like Uvalde, one thing you can do is to go home and love your family well. Love your friends well. Love your coworkers well. In the middle of the brokenness of this world, guess what? Each one of us can be a part of laying the foundation and the building blocks of a new world one that feels, tastes, smells different. 
a world that is not built on hate or evil or violence, but a world built on love, grace, mercy, and compassion. Because these small acts of love, though they seem insignificant and inconsequential in the face of so much evil in this world, these ordinary acts of faith can actually become the very seeds that bear the fruit of the kingdom of heaven on earth. So we contend on our knees with our voices and with our hands. And I want to say this. Any one of these, apart from the others, is dangerous. If you only contend on your knees, you run the risk of a faith without action, a faith that costs you nothing. If you only contend with your voice, you run the risk of becoming what the Apostle Paul says. He says, you can become a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, just making a lot of noise but devoid of love. If you only contend with your hands, you can easily forget the why of what you do, and you can fall into a salvation by works. So separated from one another, this is a recipe for disaster, but put together, these can produce the very person that God is seeking, a person who is meek yet bold, helpless yet powerful, desperate yet hopeful. Now let me pause. It's easy at this point to say, okay, got to go change the world now, right? I just got to pray harder, I guess. I got to start using my voice. I got to go become this activist. And depending on where you are today, this is either going to get you super fired up or it's going to overwhelm you. Because you're like, I mean... I, I got to get through Monday and you know, talk about contending for the renewal of the world. You know, I, I don't even know how to take care of myself. And yet I have to fight for like God's renewal project in our city. That's a lot. And that's okay if you feel like that because it's true. Even the most passionate social justice warriors are going to get tired at some point. Because it will feel like no matter what you're putting in, no matter how much you do, it seems like the, the needle isn't moving at all. And you see, if we try to operate just out of our own passion and out of our own strength, there will come a point for all of us when we become disillusioned. There will come a point for all of us when we become weary and cynical and our hearts begin to turn cold and numb. I mean, I talked to a lot of people during the pandemic where they were just telling me, Jason, I'm exhausted. I've been doing this work for years, but I'm exhausted. Well, then what do we do? How do we become a church that is engaged in this work for the long haul? How do we become a people whose hearts remain soft and tender to the needs and cries of others? How do we continue to contend for justice in a world that seems increasingly devoid of it? Well, the first thing is to realize that the biggest problem, contrary to popular belief, isn't out there. It's in here. And let me explain. What's easy to miss when you read Isaiah 59 is that the prophet isn't necessarily lamenting the state of the world. He's lamenting the state of Israel. He's confessing the sins of his own people. This entire passage is a passage of repentance. He's saying, we're the ones 
who grope like the blind along a wall. We're the ones who feel our way like people without eyes. We're the ones who growl like bears and moan mournfully like doves. We're the ones who've turned our backs on God. We're the ones who've lost our way. In fact, at the very beginning of this chapter, which we didn't read, God's people are looking at all the injustice and brokenness in the world, and they're asking a lot of the same questions you and I probably asked this week. They're saying, where are you, God? Why is this happening? Why won't you do something about it? Why won't you act? What's going on? And in response, God says, I'm not the problem. You are. If you read verses 2 to 4, it says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. God is saying, you know why injustice exists in this world? The core issue behind why, in spite of all of our progress and technological advancement, we can't seem to learn how to live in right relationship with our brother and our sister is because we're not in right relationship with God. You think the problem is horizontal, I'm telling you the problem is vertical. And unless we keep, unless we understand that the problem begins with us, and that we first are in need of renewal, unless we get that, I guarantee you, we will not be able to contend for the renewal of God's world. We will not be able to last. We can only stand in the gap for others when we understand that someone stood in the gap for us. That someone intervened for us. That someone pleaded to the Father for us. You know, I think about the two teachers who lost their lives this week. These are bona fide heroes. And I guarantee you that the students who survived this horrendous tragedy will never forget what these teachers have done. Not only do teachers naturally stand in the gap for their kids, this is why they go into teaching, um, but now we saw the, an example of two teachers who literally stood in the gap for their kids. And I guarantee you, these kids will forever be changed. There is something that happens to our hearts when we understand that someone intervened for us. Someone intervened so that we could be here. Someone contended on our behalf. In Isaiah 59, God looks around at the state of the world and he's heartbroken that he can't even find one righteous person willing to intervene and stand in the gap for his people, one person willing to contend for justice and renewal, and yet, yet watch this. God is so determined to show his people mercy. We often think the God of the Old Testament is a scary God full of wrath. When you read Isaiah 59, you don't see that at all. God is so obsessed with wanting to show his people mercy he says, I'll do it myself. Listen to verse 16. He says, it says, he saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. But then watch this. So his own arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. This is the God of the universe saying, if there is no one, I'll do it myself. I will contend for you. 
I will fight for you. When the prophet says God's own arm achieved salvation for him, he's talking about none other than Jesus Christ, who was God in flesh, the ultimate righteous one who came into our world to stand in the gap for those who'd been cut off from him. When God could not find a man, he became a man. That's profound. When God couldn't find a man, he became a man. And not only did Jesus come and restore our broken relationship with God through his sacrificial death on a cross, but Romans 8.34 says he is at this very moment interceding for you and for me at the right hand of God. He's contending and he's pleading for you and for me that when we pray for Uvalde, when we pray for the injustice and oppression that we see all around us, that Jesus is our mediator forever. And he takes those prayers and he pleads with God on our behalf so that when we stop praying, Jesus keeps praying. Jesus is still praying for us. And this is why Isaiah 59 works. At the end, when it says that the, my words will be on your lips and your children's lips and your children's children's lips forever, God is only able to say that. Why? Because Jesus is at the right hand and his in intercession never ends. Because Jesus lives forever, his intercession is forever. This should give us so much comfort and hope as we continue to pursue justice and renewal in our city, our nation, and in the world, to know that before we ever intercede or contend on behalf of another person, we have a great high priest who ever intercedes and contends for us. We love because he first loved us. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are overwhelmed this morning. And I know that for many of us, we're just tired. We're tired uh, of the shedding of innocent blood. We're tired of the violence. We're tired of evil. We're tired of all the injustice we see on a daily basis that we're bombarded with on our news feeds. And I pray that in this moment, before we think about going out to serve, I pray that we would first allow you to serve us. You came not to be served, but to serve. And so, God, I pray that in this moment, you would surround us with your love, your grace, your mercy, and your compassion. That you would remind us that you stood in the gap for us. And I pray that that would ultimately be the fuel that leads us to intercede and contend for others and for the renewal of your world. We thank you that you choose to partner with broken, inadequate, weak people. And you invite us to participate in the work you're doing in our midst. God, I get excited when I think about uh, all of the people in this room and all of the people in our community. And I wonder 
what kind of world we could build together if each of us would just take a small step of faith to go home, to go love our family, to love our friends, to love our coworkers, to contend for the least of these in our midst. God, may we begin to do the work of laying the foundation of heaven on earth, the world you desperately and deeply desire to see. We thank you for this word today, this sobering reminder. May we continue to be a church that contends, continue to give us soft and tender hearts that we would never tire of praying for our neighbors. We would never tire of praying, those, praying for those in need. We love you. We entrust our lives into your loving hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.